Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by my friend and training partner at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Kentucky. Aaron Murphy is a purple belt and also an instructor at the academy. He is a personal injury attorney here in Louisville, Kentucky, and runs a very successful practice. So I thought it would be interesting to hear his perspective on the, I call it the Henner Gracie lawsuit trial, but of course, more accurately, as you can hear in the interview, Aaron says that it, it should be referred to really the, as the Jack Greener case or something along those lines. So I really appreciate Aaron joining me for the episode today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am joined in studio today by a training partner of mine at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu of Kentucky, Purple Belt, Aaron Murphy. Aaron, how are you today? Great, buddy. How are you? Doing very well. I appreciate you joining me. You, we were actually partners for the Purple Belt Test back in 2000. I think it was 17. No, 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 20. Yeah, September 2020 is yep. when we tested. You were in my Blue Belt class, and then you were my testing partner for Purple Belt. Yeah. Are you sure we tested for Blue Belt together? Who is your partner? Do you remember for Blue Belt? Uh, ben White, I believe. Okay, you're right. That was, yeah. It was a big class. There were 16 of us at the time. Yep. Tyrus... Uh, was my partner for the blue belt test. Yeah, and he's still around. He is, you know, and so is Ben. I haven't seen Ben lately. He went to the Marines, right? Oh, you're saying Ben White. I thought you meant Ben Jones. You're right, Ben White. Yeah, Ben Jones is still around. I uh, see him in the morning class from time to time, so that's great. And he was in our test, our class also, I believe. So two Bens. I believe he was. So, you know, what's weird is a couple of people fell off, um, I guess, over COVID, and I was kind of worried about the... Um, retention rate in our class, but I think a lot of the guys are coming back. We got you, me, Jose, 
you I meet. Think, I think Jose was not in our class. I think he was in our purple belt or in our blue belt. Was class. he? Okay. I think so. Right. I'll try to find the picture. Um, you, me, Jose, Ben, Jones, Tyrus. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's that many. I'm probably leaving someone out. Yeah, but who well, else I was thought there? Were, I mean, there was a ton of guys, but most of them. Most of them kind of. Uh, they moved away or moved away you know, doing other things. Well, you know, you know how to get a white belt to quit jujitsu, right? <laughs> How's that? You give them a blue belt. Okay. I Statistically, mean, um, it's it's pretty bad. Have you had any luck getting someone you knew prior to your martial arts journey to try jujitsu? Sure, Greg Sims. Oh wow, that's a good one. He's actually all in. Yeah, he is. Um, it's the bug bit him, and uh, he sees the usefulness of it in a couple different uh, different ways. But yeah, it's good stuff. So, Aaron, you are of course a purple belt in jujitsu. You're also a father. Yeah, got three kids. You delivered one of them in your kitchen. It was actually in the bedroom. Uh, we had what was called a precipitous labor. Uh, not expecting that at all. But um, yeah, the the baby came before the ambulance could get there, and yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Nine one one walked me through it. They did a great job um, delivering the delivered the baby. The only thing I was thinking the whole time was um, we'll get into it in a minute. But I'm a, I'm an attorney as well, and the only thing I was thinking about was everything I'd read in medical malpractice cases about delivering children. Like your wife was going to turn around and sue you afterward. No, I was really worried about shoulders Th- dystocia. Oh. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, so what's, so, what's that? So it's where the um, the baby shoulder gets caught. You know, the head comes up, the shoulder gets caught, and there's some ripping of tendons and things like so that. So there's lawsuits the related to that. Uh, sure, absolutely. So the thing I was worried about was freeing the shoulder, and once I did that, um, she um, was born pretty much instantly, and um, we never find out whether our children are male or female. So um, it's a big surprise. And you, you let them decide, you mean? Well, we're, you know, we don't go quite go that far, but we... You wait till the day of. We get, yeah, we get a surprise. Okay, wait um, till the day of birth. Yeah, we get a surprise. And so um, she was, we were actually going back and forth between several girls' names. Okay. And I just blurted out the one of them, and that was her name. And my wife was like, uh... Um, but it was good. It was good. Um, the baby was born, and the operator said, look for some string to tie off the umbilical cord. I was like, what a weird question to be put on the spot with. Where's the string in your house right now? So my wife said, I think there's some string that I've used to tie up tomatoes in the kitchen. So I ran to the kitchen. And at that moment, all right, our nanny got there. Now, I think we had called her when we thought it was time to go to the hospital. Between then and when she actually got there, and she didn't live that far away, we already had the baby. So I said, come on in. I'm just looking for some scissors and string. And she was like, what are you doing? So You were very calm. I, well, you know, when you realize there is no backup coming. You don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you are you going to do? It. Have a panic attack and then shut down? Yeah, I mean, you can't would, do that. That wouldn't help. So I'll tell you, on the certificate of birth we got from Norton Hospital, I am on there as the attending physician. Wow. It was pretty neat. And, you know, the folks in Norton are really good. And we've had all our babies, well, two and a half kids there. We had, you know, most of the birth of the third one at home. But um, we got the, I got the string, tied off the umbilical cord, and about that time, EMS showed up. And they were super chill. Um, I got to cut the umbilical cord right there at home. The, uh, the two older ones got to come down and meet her, and then we loaded them up in the back of the ambulance, and I followed them over to Norton Hospital, went up to the uh, you know, area, and 
we basically just hung out and the doctor was like, did you plan this? It's like, no, sir. I am not that guy. If I had planned this, we would have been here three hours ago. But um, since we'd already had the baby, everything was really, really chill. And, you know, my wife took a couple of days to just rest up in the hospital. And, you know, you are a personal injury attorney. Yeah, I'm an attorney. I practice in the area of personal injury. Done that for a while. Your practice is somewhat successful. Well, you never know. Um, you never know ultimately, but yeah, we're doing what okay. What do you mean you never know? Well, there's always tomorrow. You know, I, I always okay. say every business is three months away from bankruptcy, right? Um, but yeah, I've been out on my own practicing for over 12 years now in my own business. And we've got a firm down on 2nd Street called Murphy & Associates. I have five attorneys, about 18 staff. So yeah, so far so good. Of course, with you training jujitsu, with you practicing law, um, when the court case involving, I guess it ended up involving Henner Gracie as the expert witness testimony for the prosecution, I believe Clark Gracie was the expert witness for the defense. Um, this, within the jujitsu world, you know, you and I have trained and rolled many times and, and you know, so, I mean, this is a, an interesting angle for us to discuss because there is a certain degree. You and I are about similar rank. Um, but if someone comes in off the street and they are matched up with a higher rank, there is a certain degree of, of I guess, apparently, liability is what ultimately what we get to that goes into the higher rank uh, beating up on the newer uh, a student. So, of course, this this uh, court case has drawn a lot of attention within the jujitsu world. Well, there's so many layers there, right? There's so many layers, and the you know I like to call it the Jack Greener case, right? Because Jack was the young man, the white belt, who was injured and ultimately became a uh, paraplegic. He had an unstable fracture in his lower cervical spine, um, which basically means that the uh, vertebrae was shattered and nerves were damaged in his spinal cord, right? Um, he has no feeling from the nipples down. He's incontinent and he can walk a little bit with a scissoring gait, which makes him very unstable. Okay. And so just jumping ahead a little bit, I know there's people who say, well, you know, he's mountain climbing, he's doing good. Um, he's faced with a very difficult dilemma because he has a lot of muscle atrophy from his injury. And if he does not keep trying to work out those muscles, he will lose everything. Incontinent in itself. I mean, that, I'm sure there's more to it. I mean, sexual uh, life, everything. I, I'd imagine. Not looking good. Yeah. Not looking good. And so if he walks at a rate, if his brain tries to tell him to walk at a regular pace, three miles an hour, his body can't keep up. And so he falls down. And he's perpetually at fall risk. If he falls down and hurts himself, that's it. He's done. He's in a wheelchair for life. And so he's faced with this dilemma of whether or not to get out there and try to be active to keep whatever muscle he's got left or to stay inside and lose whatever muscle he's got. And so it's a, it's a horrible situation he was put in. But um, the silver lining here is we get to examine the dangers of jiu-jitsu, the, mm. which... You know, a lot of times jujitsu is talked about as the gentle art, right? It's a safe way to control your own body and your partner's body. Except here, something you know terribly went wrong. And there's a lot of things that 
I guess are sensational about the case. Okay, one, it's an extreme injury. Right? It's an injury that you don't see every day in life. I mean, if I said, "Hey, how many quadriplegics do you know?" I mean, I could list on one hand the amount of quadriplegics I know of. Okay, and you could say, "How many forty-six million dollar verdicts do you know of?" Right. Well, same thing. I'm in law, and this is, you know, an exceptional case. There's not that many $46 million verdicts out there. Compared to other industries, I've heard someone say in the fast food industry or any, when you're insuring any, any type of business, this is the type of thing you fear. And being that the jujitsu community and the popularity of the sport has grown exponentially in recent years, it does seem inherently that this is the type of thing that is going to come up. Fast food, for example, they've experienced this type of thing. Of course, they're much more popular than jiu-jitsu academies. But it, it does seem the natural progression that a big lawsuit would happen, being that jiu-jitsu has grown in popularity. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, statistically speaking, you'd expect something like this to happen eventually, I suppose. But the thing you said is people fear. And when people hear things like this, broken neck, $46 million verdict, um, you know, white belt, black belt rolling, Henry Gracie, Clark Gracie, these are all extremes, right? And there are a lot of opportunities for people to say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that could happen. Oh my goodness, what if this? And a lot of the responses are fear-based, all right? They're sensational. And I think that if we get into the case, if we figure out what really happened here, um, we can alleviate some of that fear for okay. people. And so the response I've he heard anytime this case comes up, I mean, it's one people's opinions of Henry Gracie. Okay, Henry Gracie apparently is a little bit of a lightning rod here. And he was even prior for many years. He was, he was. And, and to a degree, his father has been... Well, sure, and he's a little bit of a celebrity, right? Grandson of Elio Gracie, right? And so in the jiu-jitsu community, if you got the last name Gracie, you are a celebrity, right? Crone Gracie, fighting pretty soon in a UFC card. I mean, I'm tuning in to watch it. Sure. Um, Likewise. Yeah. And so when you've got that Gracie name, you've got a little bit of a mantle you carry. And to be fair, if I was Henry Gracie, I'd probably be doing the exact same thing as he is, right? Building the brand, building the business. But with that, you know, you rub some people wrong and some people have very strong opinions about him. But as an attorney, you try to compartmentalize things, right? Whether Henry Gracie or not, is a you know good guy or bad guy doesn't really affect what happened to Jack, right? And so the other thing is people are like, what about what about jujitsu clubs? What about businesses? Um, if there's forty six million dollar verdicts floating around out there, you know, we're worried places are going to go out of business. So um, I think it'd be good to mention you know Delmar Jujitsu Club where this happened is doing well. They're growing. They didn't oh. go out of business. Was that instructor the owner? Uh, Iterude uh, was the instructor, and as I understand, he was not oh, the owner. Oh, okay, okay. But I think he's doing well, too. So they sued. Who is it they sued? It was the, the, the minimal, half-assed uh, insurance policy that they had to insure the, the business? Well, I don't want to characterize it as minimal, half-assed policy. It was a $1 million policy. Okay, so that's appropriate for a jiu-jitsu academy. Well, um. You have to discuss that with your insurance broker and see what kind of coverage you want. But a one million dollar policy for a small business is not unusual. Okay. Okay. Um, 
But for example, when you say, is that appropriate? You know, in Kentucky, you can drive with a $25,000 policy. Twenty five fifty is the state minimum. And some states have lower. So you buy the cheapest liability insurance in Kentucky for your car? I that- think that's too little. Okay. All right. I think... I think by law, we should have $100,000, $300,000 policies. And it's because the people with the least amount of insurance cause the most amount of damage. All right? If you have a driver who's drunk and runs over a family of five, I'm not saying they always have minimum limits, but there's a lot more minimum limits policies out there than there are high-level policies, right? Just okay. statistically. So a lot of times you see somebody causing a lot of damage who doesn't have a lot of insurance. Sure. And so when we get into the business side of it, I mean, usually insurance is there to limit liability. Okay. A lot of people think your LLC is there and your corporate entity is there to limit liability. Um, on the back end, that can be the case, but most people actually commingle their business and their personal lives enough that some of those liability protections aren't going to be there. But most people don't have a lot of assets and resources, okay? Um, especially that couldn't be hidden in bankruptcy. So I'll tell you that I have never, ever, ever gone after anybody personally for any personal assets except twice. And I'll tell you, one of those cases involved sexual abuse. And one of those cases was a horrific drunk driving accident. And in both of those cases, we said, we expect this person to chip in some of their own money. And in both of those cases, that person said, yes, I will. And here's how much I'll give. Those are the only two cases that I've ever pursued anybody for personal assets that weren't an insurance policy. And that's because they were extreme cases. I mean, people died in the drunk driving accident, I assume. Uh, Severe, severe, severe injury. Okay. And then the sexual abuse, of course. Right. And in that case, my client, the victim, said, I need money to pay for therapy. That's it. And in that case, they're actually, the insurance policy um, declined to cover that case. Because it said it was not a SAMS policy, a sexual abuse and molestation policy. Hmm. So sexual abuse and molestation policy. That's common. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on that kind of coverage. It's it's kind of one of those things where I guess doctors um, and other professionals, this guy was not a medical doctor, but he was in the in the healthcare profession. Um, the the offender. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those things where if you go talk to your insurance broker and say, hey, I need sexual abuse and molestation coverage, like, you do? Now, and that's a smart conversation to have, by the way. Yeah, well, I can see where if, hmm, yeah, I, I guess there's some instances where you probably do need it, but it's probably an awkward conversation with your broker. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Um, and whether you have it or not, you know, your business might have it um, if you employ certain people, you know, if you're a daycare. So anyway, that was a complicated situation, which the insurance com- company said, hey, we don't have coverage for this. But my client, and sometimes I represent people who the case may not make business sense, right? But it's the right thing to do. Okay. And when she came to me and said, hey, I've got this situation, I said, of course I'm going to represent you. Even though at one point it looked like we weren't going to get, I mean, we weren't getting any insurance money. Right. And we put this guy on a payment plan. And, you know, if we got any money, it would be coming in over time, which it did over time. And she was able to pay for her therapy. And I hope feel a little bit of justice was served. But I bring up those two situations to say personal injury attorneys do not go after people personally. 
They do not go after people's assets. Except in rare circumstances. Except in extreme circumstances, okay? And so, it, in the Jack Greener case, Professor Iterude and the Dunmore Jiu-Jitsu Club are never, ever, ever going to pay $1 out of their own pockets in this case. Okay, and that, that is what you are saying is consistent with, I think Hordian was at least in Brazil an attorney, and then his son, of course, is very business-minded. And when Henner released his video, there was this uproar in the jiu-jitsu community. He posted on his Instagram an explanation mm-hmm. for what had happened, his involvement, the compensation. He was trying to come across as very transparent. And it sounds consistent with what you just said, is that the insurance company is doing the payout, not impacting the individual, the instructor, or even the gym owner. And not to say it's not a big deal, but guys, relax. It's not quite what everyone's making it out to be. And it sounds like you are echoing Henner's uh, side on this case. Is that accurate? Well, there's a little bit of a twist here, Ryan. Um, What has happened is the insurance company said, we're not going to pay from the beginning. That's why there was this lawsuit. Okay. They're still not paying. They're appealing the case. Okay. And a lot of times, you know, so we should keep in mind this happened in 2018, right? Correct. We heard about it for the first time, beginning of 2023. And it blows up. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, this just happened. Well, it just happened in our consciousness, right? But Delmar Jiu-Jitsu Club has been going on for five years after this happened, right? Jack Greener's been living his life five years after this happened. This lawsuit's been happening in one sense or the other, behind the scenes, five years after this happened. So Mm -hmm. now it breaks in our consciousness. It's going to go away from our consciousness. Jack has not gotten one dollar. Okay. And Jack's not looking at getting a dollar anytime soon because the insurance company is appealing the case. Mm. So this case is solely between Jack and Del Mar Jiu-Jitsu Club's insurance policy. Okay. Now, the thing about it is, and one good thing about Kentucky law and also California law, is that if an insurance company does not handle a case correctly and does not do what they've promised to do in stepping up to the plate after they've already taken the premiums and promised to you know, treat everybody fairly, they can be held liable for that failure, okay? And so, in Kentucky, we call that bad faith law. And some states do not have great bad faith laws. So, Indiana is a state that does not have great bad faith laws. It's very difficult to hold insurance companies accountable. Hmm. In Kentucky, it's a little more fair. A little more fair. And in California also. So, really, this case has become a referendum on whether or not the insurance company treated everybody fairly, primarily Delmore Jiu-Jitsu and Iterude. I mean, they should have never had to go to court and had this publicized against them in the first place. The insurance company said, should have said, hey, we're stepping up, we see what's going on, but there's a, there were a couple wrinkles that they relied on, right, that are very relevant to Jiu-Jitsu and the practice of Jiu-Jitsu. One, there was a waiver, right? And so some people said, well, there was this waiver, but the waiver's no good. Why is the waiver no good? And I've told, I've told our instructor, and I tell other people, waivers are not worth the paper they're written on. Now, I will tell you that is an overstatement. There is some use of waivers, right? And everybody should still have a waiver. Okay. And you should have your waiver looked at by an attorney. However, a waiver is what's called an exculpatory contract, okay? And so before I came to your studio today, if I had presented you with a piece of paper that says, hey, by the way, buddy. Uh, no matter what I do here today, no matter what happens, you are agreeing you won't sue me. You would look at me and raise your eyebrow and say, what are you planning on doing today? Because it's such an open-ended thing, right? It's sort of protecting against the future. 
Well, the future is uncertain for both of us, right? And so that really tilts things in your in your or my favor. If I'm the one presenting the waiver, you're the one presenting the waiver. So the law is very suspicious about things like this, okay? And these things are very narrowly construed against the person who's saying, hey, you signed my waiver. Now, a waiver is not always worthless, right? Because a waiver does say that I understand or you understand what you're getting into, okay? So there are certain types of activities that are a little more dangerous than others, right? We think of skydiving, skiing, maybe, you know, extreme sports. And jujitsu has a level of danger to it, right? Um, but we've got to say, what is that level of danger? And what this Jack Greener case, uh, what the jury found was the level of danger that Jack was put into by this situation was more than he would ordinarily expect in a jujitsu setting. Um, one of the things I think that was relevant there was in a jiu-jitsu setting if i said hey what kind of injuries have you seen what kind of injuries would you expect from jiu-jitsu you might say uh, maybe a torn rotator cuff hyperextended you know elbow maybe even a sprained ankle and i've had all those injuries and i've gone to physical therapy for some of those injuries but i never said wow that was crazy i, I never thought that would happen in jiu-jitsu so now we, we experiment with ways to tear people's rotator cuffs, right? And hyperextend people's elbows and sprain people's ankles. So that's part of it. However, what I've never, ever, ever had somebody teach me is how to give somebody an unstable fracture of a C4 vertebrae. It's like, you know, we... Consciously. Yeah, I mean, we stay away from... You could do that on accident. Well, I hope not, because I'm not learning, you know... That type of a back take... So I've done that kind of back take. Oh, I've done that back what take. A, what a twist. Yeah. Mr. Aaron is, is guilty. Well, um, fortunately, it did not end in that type of damage. Because right? you pushed their neck and, and, and pulled them the appropriate way. Well, you know, I don't want to say that I did it any better or worse than anybody else, but I didn't trap the arm, right? And, the you know, Henry made a big, big thing about trapping the arm. But I also didn't use what I would consider 100% force, all right? Um, I was rolling with somebody who's a little higher rank. He, you know, it's very smooth in his jujitsu and we were, it wasn't quite a flow roll, but it was not a, you know, as hard as you can go roll. And I grabbed under his arms and you know, I might've even said, I'm going to roll. Yeah, Cause a lot of times, sometimes you'll give your partner a clue, what you're going to do, you know, tuck your head, something like that. Um, and it was not a really a big deal. Now, am I going to use that in the future? I'm probably going to be scared of that move. Okay. Right? Probably appreciate, scared of that. Appreciate forever. the honesty, but um, when you know, and, and Heather got a lot of uh, flack for saying spike. You know, the guy, you know, the guy's head did hit the mat with a lot of force, and basically two people's weight behind it, right? And it, you know, snapped his uh, snapped his vertebrae from it. If you look at injuries people expect in jujitsu, though, I mean, I think that's an extreme injury. Now. Unfortunately, that's not the only time I've heard of somebody getting this injury in jiu-jitsu. In fact, there is a brown belt who was at Fight Sport in Miami, in Ben, who also is quadriplegic because of a uh, spine fracture. And what happened in his case is he was going to do a fireman's carry on somebody, and they sprawled on his neck. Oh, I can see that. Now, I haven't seen any video of that, and so all I know is what I've heard from people I know that train there. Um, and this is a super sad situation, just like Jack's situation, because Ben was a very young guy, very young guy, very beautiful jujitsu, a brown belt, 
uh, was starting to instruct down there. And now, I mean, all he's left with is he may be a candidate for one day regaining some function. And it's very, very sad. No lawsuit for him. Uh, none that I know of. And so one thing is kind of the fortunate thing for Jack um, in this situation was he was rolling with an instructor. If he'd been rolling with another white belt and this happened, it, the liability case would have been much more difficult to make. Sure. Okay. And uh, going back to the waiver for a second, though, um, this waiver, particularly in Jack's case, was um, inadmissible because it had three particular defects. Okay. And so for any gym instructor, um, gym owner or instructor out there, um, your waivers probably do not have these defects. Okay. And if they do, you need to, you need to up your, your waiver um, compliance here. So one of the defects was that it was for a minor. Okay. Um, I don't know why they gave him the waiver that was specifically for a minor, but mm. Jack wasn't a minor. And had he signed it that day? Is that my understanding? No, he had not. Um, it was a waiver for an event about six months earlier. Oh, so he had showed up for a seminar, maybe something like that. Technically, there was a waiver on file, so that he didn't have to sign one this day when he came back six months later. Yeah, and my understanding is the waiver was for that day specifically. Wow, now, a lot of the waivers that we sign, and I have people sign waivers when they come into the academy from other places, right? And they're just say, "Hey, I'm participating." What do you mean you have people sign them? You, in concert with our professor Scott Smith, have developed a little bit of a a waiver. No, if they come in for the morning classes, you know. I, oh, because you're an instructor. Um, I see. Yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 a.m. It's not because I'm good. It's just because nobody else wants to get up that early. Um, but, yeah, if somebody comes in from out of town or maybe it's a new person, the only thing I care about is making sure they sign the waiver. And really it's just for them to know, hey, I'm taking part in an activity that's strenuous, physical, and could be dangerous. Okay. Now, honestly, I don't expect anybody to think I could die today. Hmm. Now, that's not to say somebody couldn't have a heart attack from the exertion sure, or another thing happened, but we want to make sure that whatever happens is, I don't want to say reasonable, but foreseeable, okay? So if you're out of shape and you go too hard the first day, which first day I did jujitsu, I went way too hard, Me right? too, me too. Um, and it happens. So if you're a person who's susceptible to cardiac events or think you might be, I would hope you wouldn't go as hard the first day. Sure. This is a little bit of an extreme example. But um, this waiver that Jack had signed was for a minor, was for an event six months before, and also it did not release the instructor Itarude. Okay? The interesting thing about how Delmar Del Jiu-Jitsu Club was doing their, um, their instructing at the time was Itarude was considered an independent contractor. Mm. All right? And a lot of times small businesses will do this. They have people coming in, they'll say, oh, well, we're going to put you on a 1099. You're not going to be an employee because we don't want to worry about payroll and payroll taxes, things like that. But that mistake caused Itarude not to fall under the umbrella of Del Mar Jiu-Jitsu Club as a released entity. All right? So even if those three things had not been present, it's not guaranteed the waiver would have come in. All right? But after the jury trial, the a juror came up to the defense attorney in this case, and he said, hey, um, what about a waiver? Was there a waiver in this case? And even the defense attorney, the insurance company's uh, paid attorney, said, yeah, no. The, the, the there wa was the technically waiver. a waiver, but it doesn't seem like it's even applicable to this incident. The defense attorney even admitted, he was like, yeah, that, it's it's not even something that would, is any good in this case. Um, so it is important for people to have waivers, but really 
not so much to say, no matter what happens, I get out of it, but to say, you understand what you're getting into. And that type of understanding is what we call assumption of risk, right? Um, this comes into play when people have boxing matches, right? And people have died in boxing matches. And so when the law looks at that, they say, well, was this something that was expected? Was this something that could have happened? Well, no, it's never expected, right? But it is foreseeable that if you let you know, a, a trained man hit you in the face for you know, 10 rounds, something bad could happen. And so we look at what level of risk is foreseeable, what level of risk is um, assumed by the person. And so in this case, the jury found that you know, Jack didn't assume the risk of that type of thing happening. Okay. Um, and some of it, you know, I don't know the jury's thinking, um, but some of it may have been they expected a black belt not to hurt a white belt. And a lot of times, you know, and I've seen some comments online, multiple comments that have said, you know, really black belts should expect to be hurt by the white belts. A spazzy white belts coming in, not knowing. And guys have said, yeah, I've been hurt by white belts many times, but I do not expect a black belt to hurt a white belt. Sure. Now, that may be putting a little too much pressure on the black belt because things happen. And I'll tell you one thing that happened to me one time is I was training at a place in Florida. I was on vacation, went to a place in Florida. They said, hey, we're having an open mat Saturday. Show up for the open mat. Gee or no gee? It's gee. Okay. It's gee. And I said, okay, great. Um, went to the open mat, rolling. You know, everybody that shows up for an open mat likes to roll hard, right? And so we we're having good hard rolls. Well, I rolled with their black belt instructor, right? And I almost caught him, right? <laughs> were and you at the, the Jiu-Jitsu Academy by yourself? No, 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 no. There, were, there, there were was other people there, yeah, but there you were, didn't know anyone else there. You were a visitor. Right, I was a visitor. Now, But this wasn't the first time I'd visited. Okay, I'd, I'd I come see. to a class or two, and they said, hey, come to an open mat. So we was at the open mat. And I was rolling with the black belt instructor, and when I caught him, I caught him at a lockdown, all right? And you know how a person will reach over, and then you catch him in the head and arm from the lockdown, okay. from the bottom. And so I caught him in the head and arm. But he eventually got out of it, okay? But he had to work pretty hard to get out of it. Okay. He immediately dropped back and heel-hooked me in the gi. And he did not stop. He ripped it. You had to tap very quick. No. There was a pop. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And it was a loud enough pop for whoever else was there to stop rolling. And everybody was silent. Wow. And his face was like... Uh, I know I've overdone it here because he'll, he'll hook me in the gi and he just ripped it. And, and for those of our listeners who are not aware, he'll hook, he'll hooking someone in the gi is faux pas. Yeah. It's frowned upon because there's not, there's no ability for the foot to really slip and move because the friction of the gi makes it so tight. Uh, it comes on quick. And just like in this situation, there was a pop. Now, fortunately for me, my leg was straight, right? My knee was not bent, and so the force went into my ankle, and he sprained my ankle. And so for the next six weeks, I was limping around. It wasn't the worst sprain in the world. It was probably a, a medium sprain. But immediately afterwards, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, if you need to go to the hospital and get checked out, please do that. We'll, we'll pay for everything. And I said, no, nah, don't worry about it. Because, yeah, he, he overstepped a little bit there, but you know, we were rolling, and sometimes things happen, right? And a lot of the response from the people who are a little critical of the 
46 million dollar verdict is they say hey sometimes we roll and sometimes things happen you know it's, it's dangerous you weren't mad at that black belt i wasn't mad at him um still not mad at him today i mean i i think he knew that he went a little too hard, and I knew that. And to deny that if uh, uh, if I'm rolling, I'm going for a casual roll, and a guy ranked below me almost gets me, and I survive, to deny that I'm then going to go a little harder and try to submit him ASAP after that would just be lying. I mean, a lot of times that happens. That's just human nature. I'm not saying it's justified in the eyes of the court or anything like that, but that's human nature. It is human nature, and I think we can all understand that, especially those of us who've been there, right? And we don't know what was going on in this role, right? And I have never had the thought that Instructor Iterude was malicious or mean or did any of this on purpose. Never once has that crossed my mind. However, when you see them rolling and you see his hips coming up off the ground and you people say, oh, well, you know, Jack had competed before. He was... You know, they may have been rolling hard, and it may have been fair play to an extent, right? But where does that line come in? Sure. And the, I think the thing that really probably tips it for me is that, you know, if somebody did a can opener, which is a cervical crank on me, I would say, you're not supposed to be doing that. This would is, you? Yeah. Have you said that to someone before? Um, I had a white belt do a can opener on me one time, and I was shocked. Uh, it was something he Wrestler. learned. No, it's something he learned in the military. Oh, okay, um, okay. A lot of the military training courses, they teach these guys these ridiculous moves. Um, and so he did a he did a can opener on me, and I was I was shocked. And no, I, I didn't uh, I didn't tap to it. I you know moved and and got out of it. But and after right after the can opener att- can opener attempt, your intensity in that role escalated at least a little bit do you admit that I, you know i don't think it did um I, I i was actually just so shocked that he would have you know because i was like did you then submit him pretty quick i don't even remember i think it was probably you know i was in the guard he did a can opener well he was in my guard uh, rather he did a can opener um i moved i don't i don't even remember what happened after that this is several years ago um but it, it did it did make me think a little more about stuff like that and so um there have been times when I've talked to the class about, you know, hey, if somebody does this to you, here's how you counter it. Okay. You know, here's what you do. And that's one reason that that move is you know, sort of a ridiculous move to do is because you're extending your arms in a person's guard and it puts you at risk for getting armbarred. I have uh, rolled with an Olympic-level wrestler who can't open or did a can't opener to me. And despite the just kind of give up on your guard and, you know, scoot back type approach couldn't do shit i couldn't do anything so i mean if the grip is truly there that strong olympic level yeah i mean it can be difficult to deal with well for sure and if if a person is olympic level d1 level um all bets are off well i mean sometimes you know a lot of people think um hey i learned a couple moves that jiu-jitsu i've trained for a year why am i not beating black belts well same thing why why are you not beating d1 wrestlers why are you not beating olympic level wrestlers and sure um you know, I when I was a blue belt, I got a chance to roll one class with a a guy who was a former Olympic gold medalist, and you know who I'm talking about. Yep. And he's not my age; he's he's old enough to be my father, but he handled me pretty easily. As my, he has me, <laughs> in my opinion, he handled me pretty easily. And so, you know, I mean, why couldn't I armbar that guy? Well, 
That's that's a, who I was referring to earlier. Okay, so he's can't opener me. Oh, <laughs> and it works. <laughs> and I was like, "What the hell just happened?" And then it happened again. I mean, it's happened to me multiple times by this old Olympic gold medalist that we're referring to. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's not a joke. You cannot um, you cannot overcome a lifetime of experience. Um, which oddly enough, you know, in every other martial art, most of the time they rank their success against untrained opponents, right? In jiu-jitsu, we only rank our success against trained opponents. Mm. And most of the time, we wistfully wish we or hope we could beat people who are even more trained than we are, right? And so when people come to you and they're like, hey, you know, if they're a white belt, why doesn't this move work on you? I say, well, I mean, it did. It just didn't work the way you wanted it to. Sure. Um, because we recognize that there's levels to the game. There's always a counter to the counter, right? So... Um, in this case, you know, and I've thought about it, you know, what would I do if somebody trapped my arm and, and went into that, um, into that sequence? Is there a way I could, you know, roll, hit my shoulder first? Is there a way I could you know, tuck my head in a different way? And honestly, you know, we don't know this move, you know, could have been something that was done regularly. Jack could have seen this move before. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether he had or not. Maybe that information's in the, in the court record, um, and obviously, this guy, uh, Itarude, had done this move before with no negative consequence. All right? There's not a list of 10 people that he's turned into quadriplegics. But in this situation, something bad happened. Right? And unfortunately, or fortunately, that's when the law gets involved. Mm. And that's when you have a dispute. And that's when people go to court and they say, hey, let's look at this. What happened here? Random question, but you said the state of Indiana has worse laws when it comes to, what's it called? Bad faith. Bad faith. So who would defend that? Do they get better insurance rates in Indiana? Who disagrees with your uh, uh, description of that? Would it be a small business owner who gets to pay cheaper rates? Although they're more vulnerable to possible lawsuits, they're getting a, a, a better value or at least a better, a lower uh, dollar amount premium. Who would argue on the other side of that bad faith assessment on your part for the state of Indiana versus California and Kentucky? You said California and Kentucky have good bad faith laws. You said Indiana has bad faith laws, uh, bad good faith laws. Who would take the other stance on that? I think it's in a lot of the philosophy of it, right? And bad faith is a very a niche area of law. Um, if we open it up, you know, Indiana has what I would consider worse laws for injury in every area okay for the attorneys involved well um for the people who are injured okay right okay. And you represent the people that makes sense i do i do and so yeah i definitely have a bias here i mean i definitely am very pro individual and so my personal philosophy is that whenever there's a tie between an individual and an entity a business you know tie goes to the runner individual baseball should. baseball reference baseball reference right um now, people would say, well, in Indiana, it's a little more reasonable. You know, you shouldn't just be able to, you know, sue somebody if, you know, they're not, you know, clearly at fault, like more than 50% at fault, more than, you know, and um, you shouldn't be able to get this and that. And they have a collateral source rule um, that is different than our collateral source rule, which means the amount of medical expenses that you can claim against somebody who injures you in Indiana is different than the amount of medical expenses you can claim in Kentucky, right? Okay. They've got a different liability standard in the sense that if we're in an accident and I cause 50% of that accident, 
but became a paraplegic and you caused 50% of that accident and walked away with not a scratch on you, I could still sue you for the 50% of the injuries that were attributable to your actions. Okay. In Indiana, you can't. Okay. So those things, insurance companies would, the insurance company would say, yeah, but now we get rid of all these frivolous lawsuits and you get lower insurance rates. There are lower insurance rates in Indiana. A lot of that is um, on the auto side related to the no-fault issue, all right? So Kentucky is one of the minority of states that has no-fault insurance, which doesn't mean nobody's at fault for accidents, which sometimes people think. It just means no matter what happens in that accident, you have $10,000 to pay your medical bills right up front. Instead of having to go to court for a couple years. PIP. Yeah, PIP, personal injury protection. Some people call it basic reparation benefits. Those are both referred to. Indiana um, does not have the $10,000 PIP rule. They don't. And most states don't, by the way. There's, um, I think at last count, 15, 16 states that do have some form, right? And it's all different of no-fault protection on their car insurance. Okay. And so a lot of people um, would look at that as a higher driver of insurance rates in Kentucky. Now, when you get down to it, um, you know, I, I don't know how to quantify whether rates are expensive or inexpensive. I mean, you get what you pay for, okay. at least hopefully, right? And so if you're in a car accident, you want to be in the car accident in Kentucky, not Indiana. Or Tennessee. Are you licensed in Indiana? I am not. We have an attorney who is in our office. Uh, JP is licensed in Indiana. I'm licensed in Kentucky and Alabama, which... Incidentally, Alabama has horrible laws for people who are injured. Why are you licensed in Alabama? Well, when I got out of law school, um, the market wasn't great. Uh, 2007 is when I got out. So you remember 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. I became a stockbroker in November of 2007. Bad timing. <laughs> well, you and me both, buddy. Um, so there were uh, firms downtown that were laying off entire departments. I had friends who had um, offers with great firms, and everybody was envious of their success. And a week later, they were all out of work. Wow. And then we all were un unemployed together. So, what, what law school did you go to? I went to University of Louisville, Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville. So then Alabama, I'm sorry. We're, I'm, yeah, I'm getting sorry, there. Sorry, sorry. I apologize. So uh, while I was in law school, my parents had moved from Kentucky to Alabama. Uh, uh, so my dad went down there to be a defense contractor in Huntsville at Redstone Arsenal. And my parents said to me, you know, yeah, I know you're not planning on moving to Alabama, but with the market the way it is, you don't really have a lot of prospects in Kentucky. So just in case, Alabama also at the time had a thing where you could never wave into their bar. A lot of states have reciprocity after you practice five years in one state. You just file a motion. You can be licensed in the other state. About half the states have that. Alabama did not at the time. So you had to actually pass a bar unique to Alabama. You'd actually have to take the bar unique to Alabama, but you could use half your score from Kentucky, okay, called the... MBE, uh, the multi-state bar exam, which is 200 multiple choice questions. That's one day of the bar exam. Every state took that at the time. Okay, So Alabama said, well, if you've taken that within the last 18 months, we'll accept that and you just do our written portion, our practical portion. So I thought, well, if I ever want to practice in Alabama in the future, all right, if I ever want to be near my parents, move down there, I wasn't married at the time. you know, So my connections to Kentucky were you know, just situational at the time. So I thought, well, if I ever want to be down there, if I ever want to... Um, practice in Alabama, if I ever need to move home near my parents, now's the time. And so I applied to the bar down there. I took the bar, passed the bar, and I've never used it once. But you will for life be licensed there? Uh, yeah, basically, as long as you keep keep up the license, which because it's in a secondary state, I don't practice there primarily. It's pretty easy to do. Um, now, my sister did get in a car accident 
in Alabama. And in Kentucky, it would have been a pretty easy open and shut case. You know, they would have, you know, sent us a check. Uh, In Alabama, they said, oh, yeah, well, the laws here are different and you don't get any money. And unfortunately, they were right. The laws are different there and we didn't get any money. So it's very fortuitous that I live and practice in Kentucky. Not only did you not get any money, but it was not because of lack of counsel. You exhausted everything. You looked into it, and it is legitimately a worse state to get into an accident in than Kentucky. 100%. 100%. And Kentucky is one of the better states uh, for uh, consumer protection and individual rights. And a lot of that is just because of when our Constitution was written. In the late 1800s, there was a lot of skepticism of big companies, railroads, and things like that. And so um, the framers of our Kentucky Constitution put a lot of protection for individuals into that document. Now, there's always constitutional challenges, and people are always coming up and saying, oh, well, you know, let's, let's streamline this and let's make things easier on companies and businesses. Most of that is insurance company lobbying, all right? And the insurance companies, um, they've done a lot of lobbying, all right? They've got a lot, of, a lot of politicians, a lot of lobbyists, a lot of attorneys, a lot of adjusters, a lot of actuaries behind their... Um, the way they do business. Insurance industry is involved in politics? Is that what you're saying? You know, I know that comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but um, they sure are, and they're actually one of the only industries that has lobbied itself out of federal regulation. Oh, out of, okay. Oh, right. so therefore it's to the states. Every state has the Department of Insurance, okay. which is inherently weaker than a federal organization would be. Now think about that. If the pharmaceutical company could lobby itself out of federal regulation, do you think they'd do it? Oh, yeah. They haven't even figured out how to do it, but the insurance companies have. So the power of the insurance industry in the United States is arguably stronger than the pharmaceutical industry in some ways? Well, what would you say an insurance company is? What is it? Hmm. I guess a giant corporation. Not necessarily giant, but a, a, a corporation. Even more fundamentally than that, an insurance company is a pile of money. Okay. It's a pile of money that is sitting there. Now, do people generally think money is good or evil? I'd say evil. A lot of people do have sort of negative connotations about money, right? Suspect of rich people. I don't, personally. I don't mind it. Okay. You, you wouldn't mind yeah, having yeah, a little Just more. for the record. I yeah. Mean, yeah. yeah okay. I'm open to it. But when you think about the insurance as a pile of money, you know, the money wants to protect itself. The money wants to perpetuate itself. The people around the money want to protect the money and perpetuate the money. And I'll tell you how I look at money. Money is the most powerful drug known to man. The reason I say that is because money represents the sum of all human desire. Now, the Beatles said money can't buy you love. But I'll bet... Most people in their mind think, yeah, but if I had a little more money, I could have a little more love, right? If I had a little more money, I could have whatever I want. Okay. I could have a bigger boat, bigger house, you know, better steak dinner. Anything I desire, I believe I could have with more money, right? So money is a very, very powerful drug. And whenever we're talking about money, and we talked about pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical companies don't just make medicines and drugs for fun, right? They're not just obsessed with chemistry. They're obsessed with the money they can make from the chemistry. 
Sure. Same thing with cell phone companies and everything else. And I'm not saying capitalism is evil. But what I'm saying is you have to understand the power of what you're dealing with. Sure. And when you're dealing with a pile of money, it's not inert. All right? And there are people around the money that want to protect the money. Sure. And they want to get more money. The other thing that's unique about insurance is it's the only product that is delivered much later. So if you pay, for example, Kentucky Farm Bureau Insurance. And Kentucky Farm Bureau is a fine insurance company, okay? I'm not here to say anything negative about Kentucky Farm Bureau. Even if you thought something negative about them, you would not disparage them on a live podcast. Mm, I probably would. I'm probably, okay. I'm probably not not wise enough not to, but no, Kentucky um all insurance companies have their own evils, but Kentucky Farm Bureau is as decent of insurance company as an insurance company could be. Okay. Um, but what if you paid your premium to them for multiple years, and all of a sudden, a tree fell on your roof, they came out and they said, well, you know, for this reason or that reason, we're giving you half of the cost of repair, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you said, this is horrible. I don't like this. I want to go shop at State Farm. I want to get State Farm over here. I heard they're repairing roofs like crazy. State Farm will say, well, you haven't paid us premium. So you can't choose. Conversely, if you went to buy something from the store, you went to Target, picked it up, took it home, didn't like it, you could take it back. Take your money over to Walmart. Get it over there. Okay. Take it back. You know, Go to Meyer, Unbox it. Try it a while. Take it back. You can't do that with your insurance company, sure. right? So you're expecting to be a good neighbor on your side, in good hands, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time, people, when they get into claim situations, find out that advertising is just advertising. Jake from State Farm isn't showing up. And so it creates a, a problem for people because the money wants to protect itself. The money doesn't want to leave the pile, right? Psychologically, the money wants to stay with the company. It doesn't want to come back to you. Sure. And so... There are very few situations where somebody says, you know, my insurance company treated me awesome. I'm not saying it never happens, but there's a lot more situations where people say, you know, that wasn't what I bought. That wasn't what I expected. But I saw a, a billboard in Louisville that said CareSource, which they sell Affordable Care Act, Obamacare health insurance plans. Mm -hmm. CareSource, because we care. I think that's what the billboard said. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of bullshit? Who sees that billboard and thinks, oh, that's a good company. What kind of idiot is like, we're an insurance company. They say they care. That means they must. Like, what kind of moron believes that? Well, I think we're all optimists at heart, right? We all want to believe somebody cares. They don't. Um, you know, it's hard because you got to think about what it, what is an insurance company. It's a pile of money. Does it care? Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. That's my point. They don't give a shit. I'm an insurance agent, so I have a different perspective on it, of course. Well, here's the problem is you're a person though, and you probably care as much as you, as much as I could tell you not to care about what though. I care about my kids, my right. family. But even if somebody came to you and they said, Hey, we're, you know, we're retiring. We need insurance. Will you help us? Your human nature would make you want to care, right? You as a person care. Yeah. For the sake of giving them the best advice and building my business and all that selfish uh, motivation. Yeah. But businesses and, you know, I was actually listening to a doctor talk about this, um, yesterday and today, they've done case studies in businesses function, especially healthcare businesses, um, in very antisocial ways, all right, like psychopaths. And it's not because they're necessarily evil. It's just because 
they're not caring. Businesses who say they care for you, I mean, it's sort of laughable, isn't it? As we're it's sitting laugh- here. That's my point. It's laughable. Like, hey, tell me something else. Like, hey, we're a strong company or, you know, we at least do honor. We wish we didn't have to, but we do honor our contracts when we need to. I would be like, okay, they're honest. Will you care? What do you care about? I mean, that's that's a bunch of fluff. Well, it is, and a better thing for them to advertise, maybe more honestly, would be statistically speaking, we pay claims quicker than everybody else. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that might be something they could say truthfully. I would be like, oh, at least they're honest. Well, you hope. You hope that's honest. Honest is. Um, And I'll tell you one thing: the insurance and insurance companies, uh, because they're piles of money, they don't count money the way we do. All right, Uh, they do not. A $46 million verdict to an insurance company is nothing. Um, they're going to bond it. Do we know what company that was? I don't know what company it was. And it almost doesn't matter. Okay. Because a lot of this behavior, uh, they learn it from each other. They go to the same symposiums. They have the same consultants. Um, I know McKinsey and Company has consulted with um, insurance companies on how to purposely um, mistreat claims. There is a book that you can read called from good hands to boxing gloves. I'll let you guess which company it's about. And it's about the McKinsey Corporation's consulting with that insurance company on how to beat up on certain claims to make more money. And they became hugely profitable after that consulting session. Um, but insurance companies are piles of money. And so sometimes you'll have manipulation of these companies. Um, there is a, a large investor whose name rhymes with Warren Buffett who owns insurance companies and has bought funds of insurance. And... There have been, you know, people who've said, well, he did that for actuarial reasons because he could stretch out the payouts on those on those claims and use the money. Okay. But that's just the pile of money, right? I mean, that is a brilliant business decision. Sure. But when it comes down to an individual who's suffering from, you know, end stage mesothelioma, you know, we'd have a different opinion. Have you ever been injured on a jujitsu mat? Yes. Okay. I've had two grade two shoulder tears, um, hyperextended elbow, and of course the ankle sprain I mentioned earlier. None of those really took me out of training for very long. Okay, so it's mi- relatively minimal. Yeah, no surgeries, physical therapy. Um, no, no physical therapy. No, I went to physical therapy. Oh, you did for for the elbow, for the shoulders, um, the ankle. I just kind of toughed it out. At what point of an injury would you consider legal action? That's a good question. Um, so there's a, and if you're talking about specifically in the jujitsu context, yeah. So some of that, um, and if we look at you know kind of what happened to this Jack Greener case, right? Um, and you came to me and you said, "Hey, I've, I've got a shoulder injury. I want to I want to sue somebody. Hey, I've got a broken leg. I want to sue somebody." I say, "Okay, well, let's look at this. We're gonna we're gonna call Henry Gracie up. We know he's an expert in these cases. We know he's testified at least once, right? And he said this is the first time he's ever done it." And we're going to pay Henner, all right? So what are your medical bills? Uh, it looks like my medical bills will be about $80,000. Okay, great. We're going to pay Henner $100,000, okay? Because that's what his advertised fee in this case. We're going to pay Henner $100,000. You're going to pay me a percentage, all right? Maybe a third, maybe 40% of the case. And there'll be some other case expenses. If there's a payout, you'll get paid. If not, you, right. you the attorney, will get nothing. Exactly, exactly. We're in it together. Um, and so how much money are we going to have to have to cover Henner, to cover your medical bills, and to cover your attorney's fees? 180000 to pay Henner and to pay my, um, my uh, uh, medical bills. That'd be one eighty 
but then beyond that to pay the attorney if there's a payout yeah that's indefinite so right? we, or uh, d- difficult to project yeah the math but the math isn't really adding up here right the math isn't working out well because even if you got a shoulder surgery okay um if you got two back-to-back shoulder surgeries, we might be at 80,000, okay? Now, sometimes the sticker amount of the bills is going to be a little higher, but all that's fungible, all right? All that can be negotiated. So if we're at eighty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 in medical bills, you had two shoulder surgeries, we're going to hire Henner to come out here. We're going to go through the case. Um, at the end of the case, you're still going to walk away with nothing. So you have to have a very serious injury. And this is an important thing to note, and it's just kind of like how we look at things legally. Every injury case and in, if you go to torts class, they'll tell you, you know, it's four, four aspects to li- um, liability. Um, foreseeability is uh, duty, breach, causation, and damages are the four elements of the negligence claim. Did right? you say torts class? Yeah. See, we're already getting... We're already getting... In the weeds. In the weeds, right. Forget all that, right? Forget all that. There's two things that go into an injury claim. Liability and damages, right? Liability, who is at fault? Damages, how bad were you hurt, okay? So if I had a gun right now in my hand and I shot right by your head, all right, I am absolutely at fault for that, but nothing happened, right? Maybe damage to my ears. Yeah, maybe. maybe can not. I get Can I get some cash for that? I don't know. I mean, how good are your ears in the first place? We could ask your wife. They were that. great. We could ask your wife. They I were mean, great. She, I bet she, she says say, they're great. I, she I, says I, they're great. I bet. I bet she would. So the thing is, though, if I shoot and I hit you, right? Oh, whole different ball game, right? So I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, "But I could have been killed." Now I don't tell them this. But I think in my head, but you weren't. But you weren't. I mean, that makes a difference, right? And so damages drive cases. All right. You can be at fault as can be for something. And if nothing happens, really it's no harm, no foul. There's You're not no- gonna retroactively be held accountable for something that didn't happen. Well, you might under the criminal law. The criminal you did law something says something reckless, you drove drunk. Well, the criminal law says, okay. hey, you don't do those things. But the civil law under the civil law, there's no recovery because you have no damages. Damages. So I can do all sorts of crazy things out there, and if nothing bad happens, nothing bad happens, right? But I could do something pretty carefully, and something super bad happens, right? Mm. But if I could have been more careful, and that's one of the aspects in the Jack Greener case, right? Is this instructor admitted under oath, he said, yeah, I could have been more careful. That admits liability, right? So if I'm driving down Westport Road, you ever drive down Westport Road? Yeah. There are two schools right next to each other, right? Okay. It's Portland Christian and there's Westport Middle. I know, yep. And sometimes they both have their school uh, school crossing lights on at the same time. Mm. 35 mile an hour zone. Now, how fast do people usually drive down Westport Road? 51. I, other, other people, not you. The other people. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're talking 40. <laughs> no, they're going 60 miles an hour really? down Westport Road. Oh, yeah. Um, but speed limit's 45, but it's a nice five lane road, oh, right? Oh, okay. 45. But when those lights are on, right. And I'm going down the road, I try to slow down because I got kids, you know, trying not to be in a hurry. I slow down lights on 35 mile speed. Now, a lot of times it's hard to get down to 35 because this cars are rushing by you. They're now they're going 51. Okay. And so I'm going 38 miles an hour. And let's say the kids are crossing. Now, I don't hit a kid. I just hit the crossing guard. Crossing guards out there. I hit him. He's dead. Okay. But I was being more careful than anybody else out there. Okay? But you were going 38. Right. And the speed limit's 35, right? So I was doing better than anybody else, but could I have done better? 
And what do we expect as a society? What, and that's why we put it in front of a jury. You know, if I made that argument in front of a jury and they said, yeah, well, we only got 38, that's reasonable, then maybe they'd say there's, you know, no liability. But I guarantee you everybody would be like, well, the speed limit's 35. Why wouldn't you go on 35? You want 38. That's clear liability. Okay. So you don't even have to be that reckless. It's all about what, what do we expect? What sort of care do we expect from other people? Um, we expect other people not to be on their cell phones as they drive down the road, right? Not to be smoking, not to be changing the CD player, not to be looking down, not to be looking in the backseat of their kids, right? But how many times have you ever looked down at your cell phone as you're driving? You don't have to answer that. I would not answer that. Not on a podcast. All right, you plead the fifth. Yeah. Um, how many times have we ever, you know, back in the day when you had the CD changers, you know, and all the CDs, how many times? I mean, you walk by cars, they have these CD books in the passenger seat. They never flip through those while they're driving, right? I mean, how many times do you ever, you know, eat your Chick-fil-A, you know, while you're driving down the road? What do we expect the ordinary level of care to be? And it goes back to this, you know, this case and people are like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't do the move that way, but that move wasn't dangerous. But could it have been safer? And when somebody has a life-changing injury, you know, when you run over the crossing guard, then everybody's looking. Now, nobody has ever critiqued my driving down Westport Road going 38 miles an hour in the 35 because nothing happened. And because you're probably going slower than other people even. So you look like you're going the speed limit. It is annoying as can be, right? Um, and maybe when I was younger, there would have been a time, you know, school crossing zones didn't mean as much to me. Yeah. I got kids now. Yeah. It means more to me now. Um, but it's, it's those things. And another thing is, you know, every time the law looks at a case, you don't get the same result. You know, I mean, um, nine times out of 10, maybe Jack would have gotten zero. Maybe Jack would have gotten 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. But this time, maybe is they got the better experts. Maybe the attorney was good. Maybe the jury liked Jack. This time you get that result. But hopefully, and my hope is, that insurance companies are going to take these things more seriously and treat these claims fairly. Like I said, Jack's gotten zero money. Do you expect him to get much money? You know, whenever you go, I mean, going to court, going to the law is like going to the casino. Not in a good way. There are so many ways to lose. There's so many ways to lose. Um, I do, I do believe from my knowledge of this case that it was tried well in that the insurance company has a lot to worry about. So that 93000 Henner was paid, I think it was ninety three. If there is no payout ever, you said Jack hasn't received any money yet. That was 2018. Good Let's money. say he never gets paid. Mm-hmm. Where's that 93000 Henner's still going to get his money. Oh, Henner's probably... He already he did. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he donated it to charity after he got called out. But, I mean, <laughs> um, who pays that in the event that there's no payout? Well, the attorneys are out that money. Okay, so, the, so they're confident. Um, you know, I hope they are. I hope they are. I mean, I think they, you know, forty. anytime you get a $46 million verdict, you did a good job. What's the biggest verdict you've ever got? The biggest verdict I've ever gotten is in the six figures. Okay. Verdict, okay. That's we, different than a payout. Yeah, we've got some settlements that are higher than that that are in the seven figures. Okay. But never got any eight figures, you know? So $46 million is eight figures. Okay. That's great. So that's, that would be a big deal for Murphy and Associates. Um, yeah, that would be a huge deal for any law firm. But I'll tell you, 
they've gotten zero of that money, right? And there was a case here in town uh, recently. I know the attorneys involved. It was an $18 million verdict. What was, you mind saying a brief description of it? Yeah, it's sort of a, an interesting case. A guy got hurt in a tree stand. While hunting. Yeah, tree stand failed. Uh, so the attorneys took it on a products liability theory. And they got $18 million. So the tree stand manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Got sued. It got sued. $18 million verdict. Went up on appeal. The Court of Appeals affirmed the verdict. So the manufacturer and their insurance company appealed again to the Supreme Court. Well, guess what happened? It got overturned. Coming back down. Got to be tried again. Wow. They've still got zero dollars. So there's a big difference between getting verdicts and getting paid. Um, I think I mentioned to you earlier, um, off air, there's a lot of billboards around town that say, hey, $10 million trucking verdict. And those attorneys went to court and they got a verdict. Didn't mean there's a payout. There was not a $10 million payout in that case. So it's not false advertisement, possibly to an untrained everyday Joe. They see it and they're like, oh, that's good. That's a payout, but it's really not. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's false advertisement. Um, but of course, it, it's not if an attorney put it up there. They know you guys are smart. I know. Oh, yeah. You always trust attorneys. Um, Don't trust them. Just assume they put thought into what they did. It's not a false advertisement, but it does lead to a false inference, right? Um, the attorneys are still that good. Okay. The attorneys still did their job, but at the end, what's coming out of it? And so and I've known attorneys who would rather get nine clients, zero money, and one client, $10 million, then get 10 clients, $1 million. Because the sticker value, the shock value for the sake of advertisement going forward, the bigger payout is better for your resume. It is, but it's also better for your dopamine. I mean, these guys oh, were okay. like little gamblers. Uh, just really? Just always swinging for the fences. Really? Yeah, and you know, I guess, and you can call it whatever you want. I mean, maybe you know, it's just a different mentality, and, and maybe I should have the mentality that I'd rather see nine people walk away with zero, but just being honest, that's not the case. That's heartbreaking. And I'll tell you the, the first dollar helps more than the last dollar. So if somebody was highly injured and I got them a million dollars, that's a big deal to that person. Yeah. Those million dollars help them more than the difference between the 9 million and the 10 million. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. And you know, I can, you know, I can never fill in the hole in somebody's life that is caused by, injury, especially extreme injury. Um, and the most extreme injury is the loss of a child, right? Wow. And, you know, I, I've seen the hole that punches in people's lives. And when you sit there and you look at that person in the eye, you, you can't tell them you're going to help them because that's a lie. There's no help in the world mm. that can deal with that. But um, you're left with a very, very poor set of tools at that point. And the same thing with... You know, loss that, you know, Jack was hoping to become a surf instructor, hoping to devote his life to being outdoors. He's still trying to be outdoors. But I mean, what are you going to tell him? You know, he's young. What are you going to tell him? Um, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Um, you know, maybe. I, I don't know. And I don't know that there's many talk about this. Maybe Neuralink will help him. Maybe, a, um, you know, one of these new therapies for brain injury will help him. But all those things are still experimental at this point. And so... You know, to say to somebody, oh, I'm going to help you is, I mean, it's, it's almost a lie. Um, but 
if he doesn't have any money, which he hasn't got any money, then you know he's bearing that burden on his own. You know, taxpayers are going to bear that through paying Medicaid and other things like that. Mm. Um, he's got one point two plus million dollars of medical expenses. Who's paying that, right? Mm. Well, it falls on somebody. It falls on him. It falls on taxpayers. And because the insurance company doesn't want to pick up the tab. That's an interesting angle in the, in effect that someone gets injured like this. They can't walk anymore. Just speaking in terms of reality, somebody's going to pay for that. And you, you said a good point. A lot of times that's the taxpayer. Rarely um, would someone have the ability to privately fund probably all his surgeries and and wheelchairs and everything that goes along with that type of an injury. Yeah, no, it would be uh it'd be more than we'd expect anyone to have the resources for. Um so it's a sad situation. And you know, this this is gonna fade out of the consciousness of people in the jujitsu committee pretty quick. In fact, you know, we're we're talking about it a couple weeks after most people have been talking about it. True. Um nobody's gonna know when the appeal comes back, when this case is either affirmed or denied. Because the sensational uh, element to this story is really Henner's involvement and people's <laughs> previously um, conceptions, previous conceptions about Henner prior to this. A lot of people didn't like him already because he sells the backpack and he's real corny and animated and he's he seems like a used car salesman and that type of stuff. So people are, are skeptical of him almost regardless. They are, and I'm not, you know, and I'm not here to say that what he's done is right or wrong. I think that, I think it's okay for him to act as an expert in the case. Um, he was found to be an expert in this case. I think the money he was paid is a lot more than I would have expected an expert doctor to be paid. Okay. And, or an expert engineer to be paid. I've not heard about an expert getting $93,000 in the case, and experts are well paid. Mm. Uh, $20,000 in the case. $40,000 in a case, you might spend on an expert, but 93000 is on the high end. However, I'd like to know how much Clark, Clark Gracie got paid. Sure, and you know you could find that out from the court file, uh, most likely. The thing about that is, though, you got to put that to the side. you got to put your opinions of Henner to the side. you got to put your opinions about $46 million to the side. you got to put your opinions about a broken neck to the side um, because that's what happens. These cases get sensationalized, and, uh, you know, the last sensationalized case, you know, everybody knows about is the McDonald's coffee case. Mm. The lady spills a cup of coffee, gets a million dollars. Well, she never got a million dollars. That was reduced to 300000 on, on appeal. Her medical bills were about that. I mean, she's walking away with nothing but a smeared reputation and country songs singing about her. How she spilled a cup of coffee and got a million dollars. But that's not actually what happened. Okay. But that was the that was the news story. That was the narrative. So, yeah, so as an attorney, you know, you you got to kind of put these things aside, break it down, and see what's actually going on here. And this is just an insurance company not wanting to pay and protect a small business owner. But the business owner's doing okay. Iterude is doing okay. The instructor's doing okay. And I mean, I know he feels bad about it, but he's moving on. Um, Jack's making the best life he can. And I'm hoping jujitsu is going to be safer from this. Um, and small business owners are going to be more protected. Everybody's going to be looking at their waivers. And um, hopefully there's a silver lining here. All right. You are a jiu-jitsu instructor. Someone walks into your class 7 a.m. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. They walk in 6.30. You're there. You're having your coffee. You're on your third cup of coffee. You're ready for class. 
some new 19-year-old walks in. In, in an arrogant way, he tells you that he wrestled in high school and that he's been winning jujitsu matches. He's a white belt, and he's about your size, maybe even a little bigger than you. He's competed a lot. He wants some good rounds. Maybe he even insults the gym or something. He comes across very arrogant. Make, very, it, make it as extreme as possible. Very right. competitive, uh-huh. okay? You're okay. the instructor. Okay. Purple belt instructor, not black belt, but for the sake of this. But he tells me I don't deserve the purple belt, right? He, well, yeah, he, maybe he yeah. makes a couple comments. You get the vibe he's going to go hard. Yeah, it says jujitsu is a fake, fake art, right? Maybe. Yeah, make it extreme as possible. Okay. Are you rolling with him? Well, that's an interesting question. Do I let him roll with one of the, the female white belts? No, I'm not, I'm not okay. going to do that. Um, you know, yeah, there's two there's two things you can do in that situation. One, you know, just to say, hey, look, you know, on the first day, we prefer you just, you know, do technique only. Is this what you would do? Maybe. Okay. I mean, and honestly, you know, it, that's a game time decision, right? I might say, well, hey, you roll with Garrett, see how you do with Garrett, and then I'll roll with you afterwards. Okay. Garrett's tough. Um, yeah, Garrett's great. The thing about it, I mean, it's a situational thing, and I'm not saying there's a right answer wrong. You okay. know, would you tell him, hey, just sit on the sidelines and watch? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. No, I mean, that, that's you almost wouldn't. cruel to do to somebody. You know, he came in there. He's wants, yeah. popping in. Maybe he wants to sign up. Right. Um, but the thing you, the thing I will say that I cannot do, no matter what happens, is I cannot lose my cool. I cannot have a situation where I get angry, where I react out of fear, or, um, you know, some sort of macho or toughness. You okay. know, I've got to keep myself under control because that's the number one thing jujitsu teaches us, right? I've got to keep myself under control and hopefully keep my partner under control. Okay. And there are times, you know, when we'll be rolling hard. And if we're getting close to the, close to the hard floor, right? Okay. Do I say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, hey, stop. Because he'll think, I'm just saying, hey, stop, because he almost had me, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, hey, let's, let's move over here. And then reset in an advantageous position for you, of course. <laughs> I do the same thing. I appreciate the transparency. I do the, I do it also. I did it last night. Hey, look, I don't need the support group. That's never happened. No, I mean, um, but yeah, you know, I, and I tell, I tell the guys before we roll, I say, look, I've got no medals for you. Like, there is no advantage to getting the better of your opponent. There's an advantage to learning here. Right, I mean, you got to adopt the Gary Tonin mentality, right? John Danner said there are white belts all over America who are going back to the gym saying, "I tapped Gary Tonin," because Gary Tonin likes getting into bad situations. He'll let himself get tapped, and that's the way he trains. That's the way we should all train. Yeah. Now I'm not there yet. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate the honesty, but I'm working. I mean, I'm I trending wa- toward it. I want to be there. Yeah. I want to be because I I learn when I get caught. I learn, right? And so there's a lot of times, yeah, where we could uh, keep from getting caught, keep from going deep into those holes, but when we do that, we're going to learn more. And so i got to think that before I can do it, right? I've got to have that mentality. So, I mean, you know, Tuesday night's not a class I get to a lot, but there's a lot of young guys there, a lot of wrestlers. Sure. Love going to those classes. It's a good one. I was there last night. Um, I'm jealous. And, you know, you've got to be able to control yourself. You've got to be able to control your opponent because a lot of times we're not going to be using jujitsu on a guy jumping out from behind a bush, right? It might be on your brother, who's had a little too much to drink at a picnic, right? Sure. And I do know a guy who's grappled his brother multiple times, right? And it's helped the relationship, not hurt it. Okay. But if we're, you know, for breaking people's spines, 
every time we're at a family picnic and we're not doing jujitsu. Right. And so, you know, the thing I, I work on is not, not injuring people. And really, I think that's what the belt should mean. I mean, the belt doesn't actually mean I can beat you. Right. Okay. But the belt should mean that I will not injure you. Okay. And I've heard it said that, you know, if you're, if you're nursing an injury, if you're feeling bad, don't go roll with the white belts, roll with the upper belt. Sure. Hypothetically in, in a theory, they will not be the ones. Who and I do think that's accurate you. for the most part. There's exceptions, but I do think for the most part, I'm less likely to be injured rolling with, of course, Adam Miller or Scott Smith. Those are probably the two guys or even Minks or Brian Phillips or one of our black belts. If I roll with them, Rich Van Hook, Nick Visconti, I'm, I'm less likely to actually have an injury. I do believe that. Well, right. And because what they do is they put that under your control, right? They can apply the moves in a way where you only get exactly what you want. If you say, hey, go deeper, I'm going to try to fight out of it, you can go deeper. Mm -hmm. But the move is controlled in such a way that it's not, they're not gripping it and ripping it. You know, I mean, this isn't catch wrestling. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to apply the move, hold it for a second, apply a little more, hold it for a second, apply a little more. And so you either have the option of working out of it if you can or going deeper. And at, at any point you can say, hey, I've had enough. Aaron Murphy, uh, Murphy and Associates here in Louisville, Kentucky. I know you didn't come on for the sake of advertisement, but if someone's interested in having you represent them, of course, Aaron Murphy on Google. I mean, you're an easy guy to contact. I am, and if anybody has an injury situation, I'd be happy to talk to you about it and um, help you find an attorney that is best for you. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, Aaron, I appreciate you coming on. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, buddy. It's been fun.